Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today I invite you to share in a conversation I had with acclaimed art critic, cultural historian, artist, philosopher, teacher, and author, Susie Gablick. Her critical work has unmasked the art world's loss of soul and ethos, and she has called for artists to assume their potential role as agents for social change and social responsibility. Her books include Has Modernism Failed? The Reenchantment of Art, Progress in Art, a book of interviews she conducted called Conversations Before the End of Time, and her memoir, Living the Magical Life. Currently, Susie Gablick hosts a blog at virgilspeaks.com featuring political, environmental, and social commentary. I'm so pleased to share this conversation with you. You actually read the blog that had some questions in it, and you echoed back some of those questions to me about whether the human race is going to survive and whether democracy is going to survive and what about art in all this. All right, let's talk about those. The human race. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with the big one. Hot topic number one. Fit to survive. You know, when I see the word fit now, I just think Darwin. Well, it seems as if there are several schools of thought here in relation to the issue of whether the human race, A, is going to survive or B, is fit to survive, which is my preferred question. I've always had for a long time, that is to say, a kind of secret suspicion that in some way we are indeed a dysfunctional species. And, um, you know, the the other side of this is people who believe not so much in Darwin and issues of survival of the fittest, but that there is some kind of a master plan out there in the universe which has some kind of ordering device and that one way or the other, as someone recently wrote me in an email, things always work out. So that becomes the the really troubling question. Um, you know, have things always worked out? And even if you think that they have always worked out, does that give you the freedom and the right to believe that they always will work out? And it seems as if the problems today are so magnified and so intensified that they are all closing in on the world globally at once. And some of them seem so intractable as to be insoluble. And uh, I do have to wonder, you know, how we as a species are going to make our way through this. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like a lot of people are relying on the hope of technology to get us through this, and there have been in the past, of course, you know, great shifts in terms of knowledge and technology that have shifted the way people do things. For instance, you know, in New York, there was a time when people were really starting to freak out about how much um, horse dung was piling up and how to deal with that, and then the great hope was this shift to automobiles and to 
another way of getting around. But then, of course, that came with even bigger problems. Worse than worse stuff. Right, worse and worse problems. <laughs> and, you know, we we only know about how global the situation is because of the instruments that have been developed and the high-speed communications and so forth. So everything has its mixed aspects. Well, that touches on uh, a lot of touchy things, at least for me, because I do see all the ways in which the automobile, for instance, has changed our lives, quote-unquote, for the better. Um, I mean, there isn't a person on the planet who doesn't appreciate the ability to move at will around the globe between automobiles and airplanes. But as usual, you know, we didn't think anything through, and I'm not even sure it would have been possible, but we didn't foresee that the waste from automobiles would destroy the balance of forces in the ecosphere and bring about climate change and so on. And if you take um, the most recent and powerful example of the Internet, this is also that at this point anyone who is involved with it would not be willing to give it up and believes it has added much more to their lives than it has taken away. But I have the same feeling that the Internet is going to be our undoing ultimately the same way the automobile has been. And I am not a big believer that technology and our ability to be masters of the universe through science and technology is going to lead us ultimately to solutions at this point since we've now lived long enough and developed these things far enough to see that they have a kind of dark underbelly that potentially undermines us more than they do serve us. And people say, well, technology is neutral. It's all in the use. And my answers to that are that uh, technology changes things by its very nature. And secondly, if you depend on human nature to always only use things well, well, then you've got another big problem. Right. (laughs) Exactly. People get addicted to things. They get empowered at first, and then, of course, power is a corrupting force for many people if they're not very spiritually mature. And we don't spend a lot of time in this culture becoming psychologically and spiritually mature before we run off and do things. So I think that that's a huge problem. It's it's not part of our educational system, and parents don't know how to parent. Well, um, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to go off on that piece of it, but I do think that addiction is the real issue here. I mean, we're addicted now to the car culture, And we've built our lives around it in such a way that even that we know it's destroying things, we don't find the will or the capacity to change it easily or give it up. And I think the same thing is true. I mean, I'm not much of a technology lover at all, 
But even I find myself these days somewhat addicted to my computer and the Internet and reading blogs and Googling information I would otherwise never find. Um, Like my next blog is going to be about rogue elephants based on Sarah Palin's book on the one hand called Going Rogue and elephants being the GOP symbol and the fact that, you know, the GOP seems to be a kind of herd of rogue elephants right now wreaking havoc on our culture. So we haven't considered the matter of life without these technologies anymore. And if there is some form of cyber terrorism or breakdown in the electrical system or oil which powers electricity, coal, and so on running out, we're no longer going to be able to function without this mediating system of the digital technology. Mm. And um, it's very worrying to me, though it's not in my hands to do anything about it. So I was curious to ask you to go back and and explain what you think of when you say, I, I fear it's going to be our undoing. And I suppose now, with what you just said, that you mean some form of cyber terrorism. I can't foresee or predict what way it will be our undoing, but if there is a breakdown in the system or an inability to keep it up and running, since everything everything is now dependent on it and will be even more so as the years go on, uh, that means all of life will grind to a halt suddenly and completely, and we won't be able to maintain ourselves. This does seem like a good place to segue into the conversation about the nature of the United States as a democracy, as even a united place. You know, you good s- luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it certainly seems that it's a divided place and very polarized now more than ever. And um, I don't know if you saw the Michael Moore film yet, but... No, I have a plan in place to go to it this weekend. It's really good, and he's basically saying that this is not a democracy anyway, but it is a place where capitalism is rampant. Whatever it is, it seems to have mutated out of the way the history books teach it and the way our general understanding of government and how it's supposed to run um, is functional in our minds. I mean, I think that there is a complete breakdown in the system and this polarization has always been there, but it seems somehow to have gotten much, much worse at precisely the moment i.e. when um, our man Obama was elected, that it looked like at last maybe things would get better. And ironically, it's gone in the opposite direction. I have had a thought recently that this whole issue of bipartisanship upon which um, so much of Obama's activities rise and fall when he first came in, 
he extended the open hand as he did to the whole rest of the world, even our adversaries and enemies and rogue countries. And he extended it to the Republicans, and they kind of spit in his face and punched him out. And they've never come back. I mean, then they banded together, as they always do, and decided that their goal in life would be to undermine him and uh, bring his administration to his knees, in the process of which um, he has been unable to govern and the country is under siege and on the verge of potential social chaos. And this is ironic to me because, and here was the thought I was trying to put out before I got so long-winded, was that whereas Gandhi lived by a mantra of nonviolence, I think Obama, because of the kind of person he is, and the fact that he's biracial and bicultural and all of those things that seemed so promising to us in the beginning, it's in his DNA to want to be bipartisan. It's just who he is. Like being nonviolent was who Gandhi was. And um, I think it's very hard for him to govern any other way because it's his nature. And um, and it didn't work out because um, people were not willing to go with it. And so everything is going awry now. Mm-hmm. I'm just reminded as you speak, I was out in the Midwest last year for uh, the greater part of the year. And so I read a book by Larry McMurtry called Crazy Horse. And I remember one part in particular where he said that Crazy Horse's own people turned on him because of his moral authority. It was they couldn't stand that as a broken people that he stood for something that they lost and couldn't see retreat. Well, that is so poignant. I have not read that book, though it sounds like something that I should read almost immediately. And um, it's heartbreaking that, first of all, if you get a really good leader, that it brings up such envy in people and such a sense of their own inadequacy by comparison that they want to kill him. That's right. They get very defensive because he stands for something that they're so far from in themselves. Yeah, so what do you think, Jerry? I mean, how can the human race survive this? I mean, these are these are core issues of human behavior that are so deeply dysfunctional that even if we get a superior person, um, it doesn't work out. You know, we talked when you asked me if I wanted to do this interview, and I was in two minds because I don't like to sound so dark and so negative, but... You know, I heard Werner Herzog on Charlie Rose a, a month or two ago being interviewed. And Charlie Rose asked him, you know, why do you make the movies that you make, um, you know, rather than some other more lighthearted kind of movies that you could do? And he said, I want to be the hornet who comes in and stings. Mm-hmm. And somehow I've sort of embraced that as my own past 
too. Toward what end, I don't know. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our guest today is cultural historian, philosopher, blogger, and author, Susie Gablick. Sometimes people get set up and they say, oh, this is too painful, this is too dark. Things always work out, as I said earlier. And I, I can understand why people don't want to go to this dark place. I truly can. As one who visits it on a regular basis, it's not fun. No, so, but for some reason you're built to withstand these strong winds and heavy rain. I mean, it's probably something about the way you are by nature and the way you've lived your life and the the depth of care that you have. And it's just not okay sometimes to just say, oh, it'll be all right. Or I just can't think, think about it because if I think about it, I get too depressed or I get paralyzed or whatever. But I think that it's very important not to to get together on the phone like this to think we're going to solve anything, but to continue to ask the hard questions and to go deeper and to probe into each other. I think that it's a beautiful thing. When I go to a museum, I think time has been kind of like what happens when somebody's house catches fire and they go around and they say, what is so precious that I can't go out without having this in my arms and they collect those most precious things and everything else burns behind them. In a way, when I go to a museum, I feel like time has been this fire and these are these precious things that that people have felt they had to save and they're beautiful things and they're well-wrought things and they're careful things. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that fair? Yes. <laughs> um, never done, but you may. <laughs> well, in terms of what you're talking about, one thinks of the national treasures that go down through history, right? Yes. And are are there any things in and of the contemporary world that you are aware of that that you would run into a burning house to grab in your arms and save if you had a few extra seconds? I'd have to give some thought regarding material things, but that's what I'm saying I think is precious and beautiful in our time, is given that many sensitive and thinking people look at these as potentially end times for the human race, and maybe there will be a lot of people that die, and maybe there will only be a few survivors, and I like to think that those few survivors would hold precious the mm-hmm. fact that there were people living in our times who saw what was happening, who saw what was coming, and were willing to write about it, talk about it, and look it straight in the eyes. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what I'm saying. I think w- what we're doing here is important mm-hmm. and beautiful, even if we're not able to solve things. Well, I read some time ago somebody made a statement about if you were riding on a bus, and you realize the bus was hurtling uh, off a mountainside, yeah. like the brakes had given out, and you were going down a curvy road down a steep mountain. What would you be doing? Would you be huddling your, you know, your head and covering your eyes, or would you be looking out the window? 
depends who you are and what relationship you have to life. Mm-hmm. Don't you think there would be some people huddling and some people saying last goodbyes to the person sitting next to them and some people looking at the fields or the mm-hmm. sun or something? I think so. I think that's how come the question got posed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's certainly what I see around me, which is that, you know, some people pay rapt attention to everything that's happening and other people are just totally involved in their own worlds and their own projects as if none of this was happening and without awareness that all this may come to naught. (laughs) But, you know, there have always been a lot of acorns that had to drop from a tree for one to take hold. And like I was referring to the museum, there were a lot of things that were made back in the old days that were maybe not museum quality. And I think that there are just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are just surviving and some are very happy with the way things are in the United States, for instance, and don't believe in global warming or any of it. There's all kinds of people. There have always been only a few people, I think, on the planet who were highly evolved. There always were some. It's always been a very small percentage, Mm -hmm. just as there's always been a very small percentage of people making things that were making things that were so Mm -hmm. beautiful and fine. You know, that sort of level of fine seems to be something in a way that maybe the whole thing is about, for all we know, just as all Mm -hmm. these acorns fall, right, but for the reason that a few will take root. Well, in my own case, I can only say that until 9-11 happened and those planes crashed into the Twin Towers, I was totally apolitical and I couldn't have told you what was going on in the political culture or... Uh, wars, you know, I, I, I really, so on a level I can understand uh, a certain kind of ignorance and indifference uh, from people because I was that person at one point in time. And since that day, um, I have been an unrelenting student of of what's happening in the world, you know, night and day. And um I was sick a few years ago, and I spent my time reading books about Al-Qaeda and trying to understand what this was, because I'd never heard of it, except for when Bill Clinton said that time that we had bombed a pharmaceutical company in the Sudan because we thought an Al-Qaeda leader was there, Osama bin Laden, and I thought, what's that? And um, anyway, to just say that if anyone would have told me that I would be following politics this closely, uh, much less writing about it and turning myself into an amateur political pundit, I would have laughed in their face, Uh, much less writing a blog, me who used to go around giving an anti-cyber manifesto about, you know, how much I didn't like computers and so on. But I do find that 
doing that now is a way of understanding what's going on. And when I do this blog, I'm essentially working out some of these kinds of questions for myself in the hopes that by doing it semi-publicly, you know, it will help other people to think about these things and peel away the layers of a situation to get to the core of the truth, which always comes down to the fundamental question of what's wrong with us, you know. I mean, we have all the information. We've set all the alarms going. Um, People have dedicated their lives to saying what these problems are and how they're evolving and what they're going to do to us. And we go on blithely as before, for the most part. What do you think of this premise? Um, I think sometimes that when I come in contact with the work of people who are deep thinkers and very sensitive, that they have had some kind of breakthrough experience, I'm not sure that's the right term, but some kind of experience in their life, whether it was a spiritual experience with nature, a psychedelic experience uh, of some kind with some psychedelic substance, um, maybe even a love experience, but something that sort of broadened their heart and mind and their capacity that is not available to everyone. And there's a lot of psychological pain, I believe, in in an enormous number of people from just neglect and just not knowing, feeling lost in the cosmos and not knowing uh, love in their childhoods. And so the idea <laughs> of the inward journey is terrifying to a lot of people. I'm speaking from actually close knowledge of some people in my family and kind of urging them to go there to to be able to heal, to be able to... I don't know that it's something that one person can urge another Right, but I, do. I know I what mean, the it... answers I get are. I know that in our closeness, the answers I get are that it would just be unbearable. It would be what? Unbearable. Yeah, well, that's the way a lot of the people I talk to um, talk about the state of the world today, that they can't think about it too much because it's too unbearable. They would not be able to function and get on with their everyday lives if they let it in too much. So building up our capacity for approaching the more difficult things in a way, remember Keats's negative capability? Mm-hmm. Um, he says that's really um, the mark of an artist or artistic personality, a poet, mm-hmm. is that they can be with not difficult states, but in the unknown and not run away from it. Yeah. That has been true of artists and philosophers and, and deep thinkers, but most people don't have that capability. That's what I'm saying. It's a lack of the capacity 
that really isn't being encouraged in anything mm-hmm. uh, that the common person is exposed to. And these, these potential experiences that I'm talking about, there's a long list of things that can usher people into a deeper knowledge of themselves and their relationship to the cosmos, but it's just not there for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I can truly relate to that and appreciate that because there are things in life that I am totally incapable of. I might be good at looking at the darkness in the world and not flinching, but, um, you know, I couldn't get on a a surfboard and surf in a 60-foot wave, much less a six-inch wave. (laughs) I admire people who can do the radical spirituality of extreme sports, for instance. I mean, I'm in awe of that who can climb glaciers and things with the potential of avalanches or slipping into fissures and all of that. And they love it. And, you know, if if they do have a brush with death um, of that order and survive it, um, they get right back up and, and do it again um, because they're wired for it. So I'm a big believer in the fact that we are all wired differently and I can't say I'm proud of the skills that I have because there's so many I don't have and so many of those that I don't have are skills that potentially I admire more than the ones I do have so I try with my few to do what I can as well as I can. Have you had some kind of depth experiences that do give you that negative capability or that do give you that introspective nature that keeps you on task with these big questions? Um, I definitely have been. I've had some spiritual teachers along the way, mostly someone called Joan Halifax earlier on and I got into shamanism and so forth. But I think the the bigger things were discovering that that life was not my own design. To sum it up in a nutshell, when I wrote a memoir, which was the last book that I have written, it was called Living the Magical Life, I realized that most of the things that happened to me happened not through my willing or wanting them, but through synchronicity, and that a, a lot of a lot of the things that I thought I wanted more than anything, I didn't get. And on the other hand, um, things that I wouldn't have even thought of, or were not part of my plan, came to me synchronistically, seemingly out of the blue but leading me directly on a path to something that I ended up knowing was completely right for me. So that was one of the lessons I learned early on, probably not to be that big of a controlling person because nothing really is in my control. So I then developed a feeling more for receptivity. I also took up martial arts and Tai Chi and and became a kind of student of energy, which is my particular vision of 
spirituality, which is the way energy moves through the world. How shall I say this? My deeper self doesn't address any kind of personified religion and God or set of precepts, but I always look, based on my Tai Chi understanding and my I Ching understanding, to figure out which way the energy is moving and go with the energy rather than against it. And um, I guess that you could define as a form of spiritual practice, but it's not the kind of thing that most other people do. And I could say something else there, which is that at a certain point, um, years and years ago, a woman said to me she was some kind of diviner, I think, and I was seeing her, you know, in a consultation. And she said, you're such a father's daughter. What did she mean? Well, I didn't know at the time, and I thought it was weird because I wasn't particularly attached to my father. And I realized, though, as time went on, that she was saying that I was a daughter of the patriarchy, which is that I was dedicated to make a career, which was true, that would be successful up there in the world with men, and that on some level I was lacking in a more feminine, uh, receptive, that that side of my development was arrested in some way. And that did set me on another journey, which was a journey into the dark feminine, which is largely one that's described in Living the Magical Life, and a kind of relationship I had for quite a period of years with the Black Madonna. Is it harder to make a living from that place than from the patriarchy? (laughs) Uh, I never really thought about that. Um, Did you not have to think about it? um, Well, I did for years, and I, you know, (laughs) that's very difficult to answer. Um, It's just not, you know, it wasn't a consideration at the time. Mm -hmm. When I was earning a living, I found that it was largely through my books, not because I ever made huge amounts of money on my books or had any significant advances, but because my books became a voice in the world during a period of time, and so I was in demand on the lecture circuit and the teaching circuit, and particularly from lectures and things, you can make a fair amount of money if you're willing to move around and and go and just, you know, get on the stage and do your thing, and it's something that I was pretty good at uh, when I did it, which was to go into uh, universities and colleges and and stir things up and um, set a lot of a lot of people talking and thinking, and then you know then I would leave. <laughs> it would be a kind of whirlwind <laughs> thing, but um, leave them thinking though. <laughs> But the, the the other teachers would then be left to pick up the pieces, such <laughs> as they are. And uh, so, you know, that was roughly speaking how I earned my living. But then um, I got some unearned income 
um, not a whole lot when my mother died. And um, and after that, this is, again, a story I recount in Living the Magical Life. I wrote a book about René Magritte and uh, the Belgian surrealist artist. And it, I was about 25 years old at the time that I decided to do this. And I went there and ended up living in his house for a year and being a kind of amanuensis and um, a sort of visiting niece, a member of the family. And um, I acquired a couple of works of art from him along the way that he just gave to me quite casually. Wow. And um, one of them was a drawing of a man running down the street being pursued by knives and forks that were flying through the air. And um, I showed it to a friend of mine at the time who has since become extremely famous. He was already somewhat famous then, Jasper Johns. And I could see that he wanted, above all, to have this drawing. This is the Living Hero Show, and I'm your host, Jari Chevalier. You're listening to a conversation with acclaimed art critic, cultural historian, author, and philosopher, Susie Gablick. So I said, you know, I'd be willing to trade this to you for a painting of yours. And he said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, do you mean I can have whatever I want? <laughs> And he said, well, tell me what you want and we'll see. So I said, I would love to have a flag painting. And lo and behold, six months later, he made me a flag painting. It was small, and it had some pictures of me that he asked for painted into the encaustic, which is the form of hot wax that he used. It was made on a dime store flag that he had bought in... Uh, Kreskis or somewhere like that in the old days when they had those stores, Woolworths. Uh -huh. And um, and when I was uh, down and out uh, and wanting to move from London back to America and didn't have money to do it, I decided after having had this painting for almost 30 years and it being my prized possession that I would sacrifice it on the altar of change and I put it into auction at, at Christie's, and it hit the jackpot. So anyway, I was able to move, get a house, and have the life that I live now um, based on this sort of miraculous sale. But anyway, that's one reason that when you ask me about, you know, could you earn your living oh, with the Black Madonna I mean, in a way, this was all during the period of my Black Madonna path. So I don't know if it was the Black Madonna's doing or what it was. <laughs> it just seems like extremely good luck. But it also confounds, you know, my sense of of where I've ever gotten my money from. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just been a little bit out of the ordinary for most people. Well, you you were special enough to make your way into a year of living with the Magritte's and, you know, then one led, thing led to another, but if you weren't who you are with what you have to offer, 
none of those things would have unfolded. Well, all of that is true. There is a kind of karmic thread all the way through it. And a lot of those good things came out of relationships that I formed when I was very young and passions that I had when I wasn't in any way thinking of, you know, what this was going to bring me in the end because at that point in time they weren't worth all that much anyway and I couldn't have foreseen it and it wasn't part of my engagement with any of it at that point. But it was interesting once I sat down to track my own life essentially that I could just see what you're kind of alluding to that, um, you know, some unforeseen thing led to another thing, led to another thing, and led to another thing. And um, I can track it back a little further for you if you're amused or interested in this. But. Well, I am, um, but it's it's actually this whole part of our conversation does have a thread back to the darker, worrisome things we started off talking about. Okay. In that, just in that the truth of the fate of humanity is probably the same way, and none, no one here really has a crystal ball about what is happening now and where it's leading to, even if it's leading to the end of this species and the rise of another species. In other words, in the grand scale of things, all our worries and troubles may be just a tiny little blip in something that is driving driving on to something else. Well, um, I agree, and, and the two strains of our conversation are connected in a certain way uh, through one of your other questions, which had to do with, you know, how do you maintain yourself given the darkness of your views of our future and so on, and how do you manage to stay buoyant and on top of things. To mitigate against despair, right? Right. And, I mean, two things I would say. The brief one and the somewhat longer one, briefly, is that I, I really enjoy life. And in a way, as other people who get life sentences will often put their all into living just because they have a sense that their days may be numbered uh, either through illness or age or whatever, and and it kind of intensifies your pleasures. So that is one thing. And the other is this synchronistic um, sense that I have, which is a kind of underlying spiritual feeling or thread that seems to go through things, and I've experienced it over and over again in my own life. So, uh, you know, as I said earlier, that um, so much that I consciously wanted or thought I was choosing for myself backfired, and then other things that were not on my agenda or and maybe I hadn't even thought of just fell on my plate and opened up in incredible worlds for me. So whatever that process is, it could be working itself out on a macro cosmic scale and I do certainly allow for that that 
um, you know, the things we think we want or the places we think we're going to go um, may not be um, how it really is at all and something totally unforeseen could come at any time and change everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that That is possible. Certainly, you know, given the data that we have and the trends as they exist, that's not how it looks realistically. But I don't preclude that there's something unseen or an invisible hand or something we don't know about. Well, one thing is certain. Death is awaits us all. You know, we're all going to die. And I just really think that the awareness of death and the willingness to live with that awareness gives rise to a sense of urgency about how we live and what we do and a sense of preciousness of our time Mm -hmm. here to be aware and to give whatever we can give. And, you know, the Tibetans make their whole spirituality around this preparation for death and keeping the awareness of death close at hand as, as a good thing. So that sort of winds back around, though, to the general mentality in in this country, anyway, of always beating that back. Like, I don't want to think about that, or you're morbid the minute you even mention it or think about death. You know what I mean? There's this pushing it away all the time, and I don't think that that's healthy. It's Mm. like saying you don't want to face Mm. reality. Well, um, you used the word in your last little set of statements that sort of struck a chord for me, which was preciousness, and it, it kind of lit up the board because I I think, you know, that's a key word that hasn't been sort of in the discussion much, if ever, which Except is... in a disparaging tone, you know what I mean? It's... it's um, it's used to put something down as being too sentimental. And well, I think we need more sentimental and more precious. Well, I, I, I didn't think of it so much as sentimentality or anything, but in terms of our unviability and our unwillingness to heed or listen to our own warnings or pay attention to what we have learned and what we know, uh, about where we're headed and and what could possibly change that and what lit up for me was the word preciousness if if we ever came into a collective mental state of mind where we understood the preciousness of what we've been given and what we have that one single thing in itself might change us i think you're right That is what I think comes about in these spiritual experiences, love experiences, as I mentioned, psychedelic experiences. It's that, actually very difficult to talk about, but it is this opening of the mind and heart that gives that feeling of love for life and love for all things animate and inanimate as part of this great and precious experiment that the universe is. It's kind of the state of mind that that you see on people's faces when they see a newborn baby. 
Yeah. And you don't see it much after that in the world. I mean, but that is one thing that provokes that moment when the world stops and one breathes out and something happens inside of you. And if we could, I don't know, engineer more triggers for that state, maybe something good could come of the human race. I don't know. (laughs) I do think you have something there, Susie. Yes. Well, in terms of engineering it, I mean, there are a lot of groups, for instance, that want to take urban kids out into natural environments where the cattails are waving in the breeze and the sun sun is sparkling on the pond and so forth because really the world itself gives rise to those feelings when we just are there present for it. It's just that people are kept so busy and distracted with other Mm -hmm. things they're not even able to Mm -hmm. just slow down and be. I have my own personal bugbear about that which is the concept of projects. <laughs> Everybody is addicted to their projects. Yeah. And uh, some people run entirely on projects. Mm-hmm. And certainly in the art world, everything's now called a project. And since we only have a few <laughs> minutes left... and oh, We have to do art, huh? Do, do you mind? Um, no, I, no. I just <laughs> wanted to ask you, with the seriousness of the questions you keep in mind in your life now, do you think about the role of the artist in the society that we're in now? And do you think art can have any power to inspire, to motivate, to change things, any any powers at all? You're listening to Living Hero. I'm your host, Jari Chevalier, and we're talking today with author, artist, cultural historian, art critic, and philosopher Susie Gablick. Well, I do. I don't think about it the way I used to think about it, in part because I used to think about it day and night, and I wrote three core books about it, a sort of trilogy. And, you know, I've said everything that I really have to say on that topic, but I haven't changed my views. I think that art has a lot to offer, but more in terms of the artist as a kind of role model. And I think the role model of the artist that has developed since modernism as the lone individual creating uh, alone in the studio, which has now been dramatically altered, I might say, but which led ultimately to the rise of an art that basically was homeless because these objects that were created in studios by single individuals had no place to go. And out of that came a a sort of artificial habitat, as I now choose to describe it, known as the art world or the art scene of professionals. And ultimately, it kind of grew a world of artists that are very egocentrically concerned with careers and making it and, you know, how famous they can be and how much money they can get for their works and who's going to show them and who's going to review them. 
And essentially, I found this world after a point not very interesting. On the other hand, there seems to have been an alternative world, almost like a shadow art world of people who chose to go another direction in in Marilyn Ferguson's sense of the Aquarian age of people who broke with the paradigm that's out there, which still reigns in our culture for art, which is the the paradigm that I now call the paradigm of dead objects. And they tried to make another kind of art that is more involved with people with, well, let's see, I even wrote down a quote here that is from myself. Art should transcend the distanced formality of aesthetics and dare to respond to the cries of the world. And I do think that there are many artists doing that. And for me, that is the true aesthetic response to the world, which is trying to improve or help or participate in rather than, you know, be a professional career maker according to specifications that someone else has laid out in a patriarchal, capitalistic culture. Oh, yes, I so agree. Susie, why do you call your blog Virgil Speaks? I just have to ask you that before I let you go. Well, the simple answer is that I never intended to blog and had never even read a blog, but I had a computer assistant install a new computer and start giving me lessons for a while, and he said, did I want to write a blog? And I thought, I'm not really sure. I I don't even know what I would do. Long story short, he set me up, and I had to invent a title then and there. And I had been working on a piece of writing to try to get myself back in the groove of writing after a long hiatus. And I didn't have a subject, and so I just started writing about whether it was possible to write something when you didn't have a subject and you didn't know what you wanted to write about. And I used the phrase um, that the alligator would bring the diamond to the surface and um, in a larger sentence of some sort. And, And suddenly it was as if this alligator came to life and appeared and started talking to me. <laughs> and he said his name was Virgil and that he had come to help me and that I shouldn't worry about anything. And so um, I then made him my my muse and my blogging assistant and called the blog Virgil Speaks. That's a fanciful, imaginative, fun image to end on. How wonderful. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you very much, Jerry. Appreciate the opportunity.